0: Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Bruce Boyden, Associate Professor of Law at Marquette Law University Law School. We will discuss his article, Daily v. Palmer, or The Melodramatic Origins of the Ordinary Observer, which was published in the Syracuse Law Review. So welcome to the podcast, Bruce.
1: Oh, thanks, Brian. I'm really excited to be here.
0: Yeah. So as you know, I love this article and I love the fact that it was part of one of my favorite law review symposia organized by Shuba Ghosh and V. Rosen on forgotten intellectual property. And And, and I think Daily V. Palmer is an especially interesting case in that context because it's like both forgotten and not forgotten at the same time, so so maybe you could start by just kind of reminding listeners or telling listeners, maybe, sorry, who aren't familiar with the case, sort of what was going on and and why you saw it as a forgotten case.
1: Yeah, so um, I mean, Daly versus Palmer is this uh, case from 1869, uh, decided in the federal district court in uh, in New York. Um, and, uh, one of the first cases really to decide, uh, an, a claim of infringement, um, not involving sort of a, uh, a, a literal reproduction, uh, of some sort of printed work. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, it, it was, uh, seen as important as in time, in its time, but, um. And it became cited a lot. Um, So, one reason why I I considered it a a forgotten case is because after it was decided for several decades thereafter, particularly in the beginning of the 20th century, um, Daly versus Palmer was just cited all the time um, as providing the standard for what counts as copyrightable material. Um, that uh, someone else is obligated not to uh, to infringe upon, uh, and then how do you tell whether infringement has occurred? And it's cited uh, throughout the treatises uh, and uh, uh, and the uh, the, the uh, court cases, um, uh, particularly by the Second Circuit um, Court of Appeals uh, all the way up until uh, basically Arnstein um, uh, Ar- 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 versus Porter uh, in 1946. So. Um, uh, you know, so, and then it, and then the citations just die off basically. (laughs) Um, so I wasn't aware of this, but when I did the research for this article, I found that, uh, you know, the citations go up through the 1930s to Dilley versus Palmer, uh, into the forties and then Arnstein versus Porter is decided, uh, uh, and then, and then basically it's not cited again, uh, by the second circuit at all. Um, Mm. and not by any federal court after about 1947, um, up until just a couple of years ago, uh, when it was cited in a Ninth Circuit decision, um, so so yeah, so that qualifies it as a forgotten case. I think it just it, it was just this key citation, and then all of a sudden dropped to nothing uh, after 1946. It's still cited regularly in the law review literature um, and in the Nimmer copyright treatise, um, typically as being the origin of the ordinary observer uh or audience test uh for substantial similarity. So it's had this life uh in the law review literature um that's that's lived past its citation in the courts. But um but that's why I treated it as a forgotten case. Um mm. is because uh you know it was this key citation and then and then disappeared. Uh and also um I don't know how long you want me to spin this out, but yeah, also, yeah. also one, I mean, one thing that really intrigued me about this case that uh, maybe want to dive into it for this symposium, you know, I, I only had very sort of loose awareness of what it was about when I first started writing this piece. Um, and when I first heard about it, it just seemed like an insane decision. Um, and so not only was it this thing that was cited a lot and then not cited after several decades, um, but it, se- it seemed unbelievable to me that this was a key case for so many decades, given, given the holding just seems unbelievable to a modern copyright lawyer, which mm. is that, um, you know, August, uh, Augustin Daly, the theater owner, is basically suing uh, rival theater owners for producing a play that infringes upon a or it contains uh, a version of a scene in his play that he says is copying from his play and infringing uh, and the scene in question is a key scene in his play where um, a character is apprehended. This is a melodrama. Um, A character is uh, apprehended by the main villain in the piece, you know, the snidely whiplash uh, person um, and tied to some train tracks Uh, and a locomotive uh, is coming down the tracks Um, and is is certain to run over this person and finally the heroine actually breaks out of a shed where she's uh, locked herself um uh and rescues him at the last second right so (laughs) this last minute rescue of a person tied to the train tracks um which is you know it's like the archetypal example of a scene from a melodrama you know i mean it's you know it's 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 uh uh, it's it's so cliched, at least by the 20th century, that, you know, it's 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 used at the beginning of Dudley Do-Right, um, uh, uh, you know, to, to sort of make fun of the whole idea. Um, and so the idea that, uh, you know, Augustine Daly could basically shut down um, this uh, Dudley Do-Right scene from being repeated by anybody else. Um, when none of the dialogue was actually copied by this other production. So, this other production just had a similar scene in it where somebody is lying across some tracks where they've been placed by the villain. They're not even tied to the tracks, they're unconscious. Um, so, they're lying across the tracks, and uh, another character has to break out of where they're trapped and rescue them at the last minute. Uh, and the court said that was infringing um, on the scene in the earlier play. Uh, and I was like, that's, you know, that's ridiculous. That's um, bonkers. Yeah. yeah, it's bonkers. And it's an indication. <laughs> You know, I think uh, in I think the view among copyright scholars, at least, is this view of, um, you know, the long term story of copyright law and its development is one of declension. Um, so, you know, so the, you know, there was a, there was a promised land, a very limited copyright at one time. And, you know, we have sort of been moving away from that ever since. Um, but the idea that this was, you know, not only was this case decided in this way, but it was a key, you know, citation for, you know, 70 years, I think indicates that, you know, it's, it's a more complex story than that. I think there's no way a court today would say, you know, look, um, there's this car chase in this movie. Um, and it's, it's. Even though it's filmed completely differently with different characters, you, your car chase nevertheless looks awful. You know, it's down the streets of San Francisco or something, right? So <laughs> it's, it's, yeah,
0: it's, right. it's basically.
1: It's you're, so,
0: get, you're, get, you're getting air on the hills,
1: you know? Yeah, yeah exactly, right? You're getting air on the hills just like they did in Bullet, right? So the, the, <laughs> the, 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 the copperhead owners in Bullet, you know, the Steve McQueen film, decide to sue because you're racing down the same hills, right? And you have a car crash at the end. Uh, and a court says that's infringing. No way. I mean, that's idea expression dichotomy. So um, uh, there's no way a court would say that that's protected expression versus idea. But, um, you know, for basically 70 years, um, this uh, citation was out there saying, nope, that's within the original playwright's copyright.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, what really got me about the piece was the way it it really illustrates how copyright has always been about competition Mm -hmm. law. And the question is like, Like what are the grounds over which people are competing? And in some cases, like historically, like the nature of competition is just like in works of authorship is just over things that look just so generic Mm -hmm. to us. Today, But I can't help but think of, like, the way people today – like, I mean, I just saw, uh, you know, an article yesterday where, like, memers were complaining about, like, people copying their memes, right? And it totally reminds me of exactly the same phenomenon that you're talking about in Daily View Palmer.
1: Yeah, you know, it's a little bit difficult to – Uh, to dial back the clock and sort of um, picture this case as it appeared to the judge in, in 1869. Um, uh, Because um, even though we view the, the, you know, character tried to the train tracks as a sort of a cliche today, um, uh, Augustine Daly was basically the first person to come up with this Mm. scene. Uh, And not only, and you mentioned competition law, right? So this is not, mentioned in the opinion the importance of this scene but i can't imagine judge blatchford uh who later went on to uh sit on the Supreme court uh so he's the district court judge who wrote this opinion i and he's the only actually he's the only federal district court judge in new york at the time um uh i can't imagine that he was unaware that this was not just any scene in the play so i it uh, this is another thing that i found out Mm -hmm. through the research i was i was unaware um but uh, so Augustine Daly writes this play. This play is a is a melodrama um, and melodramas are becoming a, um, a a preeminent genre in about the 1850s and 60s. Uh, and in particular, this style of melodrama called the sensation melodrama uh, is the one that uh, Daly is writing in and, and competitors of his, such as um, Dion Busico, who is actually the author of the play that. Um, uh infri- allegedly infringed on his um, uh, so they're all writing these things called sensation melodramas um, melodramas uh look particularly ridiculous to us today um because they're these stark conflicts between good and evil uh and the and all these ludicrous coincidences happen to the main characters uh and they prevail through them uh by you know uh, by force of their virtue as characters Um, and that all, you know, we, we sort of demand more realistic characters today, Mm. um, but at the time, that was uh, that was particularly good to uh, that was particularly interesting to audiences who were very uncertain about their place. You know, just one wrong step at the factory, and basically your family starves to death. Um, I mean,
0: there's almost there's almost like a like a pilgrim's progress yeah. sort of quality to it. To,
1: to the melodrama, yeah, 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 um, yeah. And 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 for particularly for the sensation melodrama, the, the particularly subgenre that Daly was writing in. Um, Uh, The sensation melodrama uh, 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 for its appeal to audiences relied particularly on the sensation scene, which was always placed in the penultimate act. So it's in, in Daly's play. It's act four of a five act play. Um and uh and the sensation scene was basically the equivalent of a special effects bonanza, right? So it was some it was some scene on the stage that required uh incredible showmanship and you know, a lot of um uh, uh, work in, in, in setting up the scenery on the stage uh to get this to pay off um that audiences, you know, would not be expecting to see uh, on a stage. Uh and so or
0: or, or maybe or maybe would be expecting and that's why they came in the first place i mean it, in, in a weird way that aspect of it seems so contemporary well, right. it's, yeah it's what drew <laughs> them in right so yeah it's it's it's
1: yeah, it's, it's it's the equivalent of, you know, the advertisements you see. I mean, these are basically the Hollywood blockbuster films of their time, right? So it's the equivalent of uh, the ads that you sometimes see for Hollywood movies. You know, you've just got to see this on the big screen, right? So you've just got to see how Daly's Daily, uh, new play shows somebody almost getting run over by a train, right? Um, uh, or, you know, their, their other plays had like fires. There's actually a play, another play that Daly wrote that had a character tied to a plank in a saw mill right um and it's it who was, it was rescued at the last minute you know sort of sort of goldfinger style um uh, and uh and so this is the so this is the key thing right so this this sensation scene the, the 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 making of the train that actually appears on the stage um that's got a you know it's a it's a it's a prop being uh, with a bunch of stage hands underneath it um but uh the appearance of that train. Uh, on the stage, nearly hitting, you know, one of the characters, um, was like the key moment. It was like the key draw for the whole play. And so that's what, um, Dion Busico took. Uh, he apparently saw a production of this play in London in 1868. um, uh, and he, he basically said, there's not much doubt that he, he was, you know, he, he said, you know, my my next play has got to have a scene like this. Um, <laughs> and so he did. And so Busiko put in his next play, um, which was another melodrama, the plot of which was, you know, basically completely different um but in the penultimate act for his sensation scene he put in a scene in which a character is knocked unconscious in the london underground so the london underground had just opened like five years before he wrote this uh play um and the character's knocked unconscious and left across tracks in the london underground uh and another character has to break out of where they've been uh, uh locked in uh, to rescue this uh, unconscious person at the last second. So he puts that in. And so this is not just any old scene that Busico has copied. It's like the preeminent draw for the whole movie, or sorry, not the movie, the play, the preeminent draw for the whole play. Um, And I have to think that uh, Judge Blatchford was aware of that. And so when he says that, you know, um, that the defendants are liable for infringement here because they've copied all of the action of this particular scene, I think it's got to be part of that, that it's it's not just copying the action of a particular scene, but copying the action of a particular scene where the action is particularly important to the overall economic value of the entire play.
0: Mm, mm, mm. So maybe you could like talk a little bit about like what you think it meant in the moment it was decided, sort of how the meaning of the case – changed over time and why it became a forgotten case like you know why did arnstein become like the kind of replacement reference for the same context yeah concept so right
1: uh, yeah so that's a that's a really interesting question so um and that was uh what most surprised me about uh when i when i uh dived into this um, so I, you know, I knew that Daily had been there and, and it was cited a lot and then forgotten. So I figured I just traced the history of that and I figured it just died away from old age, basically. Um, but that is not what happened to Daly. Um, first of all, for about 30 years after it was decided, even though it's it's now come to be seen as this departure moment um, where the copyright right sort of shifted from being about rights of reprinting, Uh, a physical object to more of an intangible property, right? Um, It didn't initially have wider significance beyond plays. So Daly's initial significance in the late 19th century from 1869 up to about 1903 um, was seen as just, Hey, this is a case that's useful for talking about what's the scope of copyright in a dramatic work. Um, And so one of the, I mean, if you read the Blatchford opinion, um, uh, in in daily versus Palmer, um, and one one of the probably one of the key factors for why this became such an important and cited case is because um, Blatchford spent a lot of time writing his opinion. Um, you know, eleven pages is pretty long opinion in 1869, uh, and uh, and then because he's also the uh, the the case reporter uh, for the federal courts in New York, he just plops his opinion into the reporter. Uh, verbatim so this isn't you know mm. somebody's stenog- you know stenographic notes or something um this is his own written opinion um so anyway uh so he writes this, this opinion and the key thing he's struggling with in that opinion is what's the scope of Daly's copyright in his play is it just the words in the script um you know the dialogue and the specific wording of the stage directions um or is it how the play is actually performed on the stage. Does that uh, comprise part of the copyright um, uh, that he has in his play? And he basically reaches the conclusion that it's the latter, um, that his copyright goes beyond just what's the words that are in the script. It actually uh, incorporates the play as performed on the stage uh, and the actions that uh, are carried out in response to the dialogue and the stage directions in the script um, are within the scope of the copyright so that when Busico's play copies those actions, um, you know, person on tracks, train coming, person breaks out, rescues them at the last second train runs over that spot. Right. Um, uh, that, that is copying something copyrightable. So most of the opinion is trying, just trying to figure out, well, what's copyrightable in Daly's play. Um, Mm. and there's actually very little time spent on, well, has Busico taken what's copyrightable. Um, uh, there's like a, a long paragraph where uh, Blatchford just spells out, yeah, you know, he goes sort of action by action and says, "Yep, you got exactly the same sequence of events in Busico's play that you had in Daly's play." Um, but most of this is about what, well, what's covered by the copyright, and that is the uh. citation uh, to Daly for the rest of the 19th century is for that. You know, what's within the scope of a copyright of a dramatic work. Um, there's a later case in which, and and the courts, you know, they. They say, okay, it goes beyond the mere words, but at least initially, they're not really expanding Daly versus Palmer very far, even though they're citing it a lot. Um, So there's a later case in which somebody tries to argue that a special effect, basically a water tank simulating a river on the stage, um, should be within the scope of the copyright. And the courts say, no, 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 because that, you know, it's just a tank on a stage. It's not telling any story, right? You're using it in the story, but there's no, there's no copying mm. the sequence of events from this earlier play that, uh, that used a, a tank on a stage. So that's not held to be infringing. Um, and I think there's a, uh, there's a case involving a dancer. So somebody dances out or does a series of dances and they say, well, that's not, uh, infringing on somebody else's dances because, um, uh, because you're not telling a story with your dances. Uh, mm. And so you're not carrying out a sequence of events to tell a story, which is what a dramatic work does. Um, so, so it's initially not given a lot of expansive view. Um, where things change is in the 19th, sorry, in the 20th century, when the courts start getting all of these cases um, that are coming up as a result of the boom in mass popular culture that happens sort of in the starting in the late uh 19th century the 1890s or so um so production of um you know sheet music for player pianos um and people are writing plays that are circulating all over the united states uh and movies are being filmed and they're looking for stories to tell in the movies and so naturally they gravitate towards uh existing short stories and plays um uh and plays are copying from other plays and short you know plays are copying from short stories and movies are copying from short stories you know so you got all this uh activity going on in the early 20th century and the question is well when you tell a story that's you know you film a movie and it's very similar to a jack london short story um uh but it you know uses different names for the characters and doesn't have any of the same dialogue is that infringing or not and the courts have to decide these cases and they looked at daly versus palmer um for guidance on this, because um, even apart from talking about the scope of dramatic works, um, they looked at Daily versus Palmer, particularly for the silent film cases. Um, mm. but even
0: yeah, through, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. Silent film cases. Right. <laughs> so it's all action um, mm-hmm. and very little uh, dialogue. Um, but even for plays copying from plays, they're like trying to figure out, well, have you taken basically the plot from this earlier play? And so they use blatchford's method of analysis from daily versus palmer to say yeah you're infringing even if you took none of the dialogue or script from the earlier play or short story or whatever it was if you have the same sequence of events so if you copy you know thing one happened and then thing two happened and then thing three happened you copy enough of that uh and you're infringing and so they're citing daily versus palmer a lot for that um and In response to that development, lawyers start coming forward in the early 20th century trying to prove infringement or trying to disprove infringement um, by trying to prove how many of the events are similar or not similar. And so they're coming into court um, and they're coming into court in equity, I should say. Um, So they're not they're not trying these cases before juries. These are all cases in equity because they're trying to get an injunction. This is prior to the merger of law and equity. So they're not trying these cases before a jury. They're coming into court in equity and saying to the judge, look, I've got this long, detailed synopsis. and I'm going to bring in, you know, expert witnesses to say that this, you know, kind of play has never been done before. So it's original. Um, And furthermore, the defendant's play does all of these similar events, has all these similar events in the same sequence in it. And the defendants come in with their people and their experts and they say no 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 there's all these events that are different right so the, 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 the record in these cases starts getting really large um, and uh, and that's the key thing that Daly's getting cited for is that that's the way you do an analysis uh, to figure out if the defendant has taken too much uh, mm-hmm. from the plaintiff's work um, meanwhile um, uh, some judges getting very frustrated with that, um, learn in hand, actually in the Nichols case, uh, you know, mm-hmm. we, we, read the Nichols case all the time. Um, there's this line at the end, um, that we typically pass over in teaching the case in, in copyright law where he says, you know, the size of the record before the district court is just too huge and it's due primarily to the use of experts. Um, and what he's talking about is the district court judge in that case had a, like a month long hearing. About
0: oh god yeah, really yeah uh
1: a month actually um jessica litman wrote an article about silent film cases uh and she she spends a lot of time describing um what happened in the trial uh or the i guess whatever the proceedings uh equity uh in Nichols and yeah it was like a month's worth of hearings basically um on whether Nichols play was original so had her basically plot been done before um and you know it's almost like patent novelty uh, the way they were doing it. Um, and second, um, how much of her sequence of events had been taken by the defendants in their in their silent film? Um, and uh, and Ham looks at that and says, you know, this just this can't just just can't be the way we're supposed to decide this question of infringement. Um, it's got to be uh, a more intuitive test than that. Um, it's got to be something where. Um, you're asking about the overall impression that a play makes. And so there's this series of decisions starting basically in the um, late teens um, that are sort of ride alongside the courts that are looking at sequence of events. Uh, and th- these decisions say um, that, you know, actually, you should step back and consider the forest and not just look at the trees uh, and ask whether the overall sort of plot of the two works. Uh, is similar in a way that the uh, observer of a play or movie um, would appreciate uh, the similarities. Uh, and so that test uh, starts developing um, in sort of tension uh, with also looking at the sequence of events. Um, and so what kills off daily as a site? It's it's Arnstein versus Porter. But one thing I didn't realize about Arnstein versus Porter is that um, Arnstein versus Porter is reconciling these two um, threads in the case law. Mm. Um, And so if you read the full Arnstein versus Porter, you see this dissent from Charles Clark, um, uh, who is uh, one thing he says in that dissent is, uh, you know, the the two-step process that we're all familiar with for deciding uh, infringement um, uh, in a, in a copying case, um, you know, actual copying plus what's now called substantial similarity, um, or, you know, improper copying, uh, um, judge Frank for the majority says, well, that's the test, right? This two-part test, uh, Clark looks at, back at the case law. He says, I don't see anybody doing a two-part test, uh, mm. in the prior cases. And, I, you know, I, for a long time, I thought maybe he was just wrong about that, but no, he's right. Um, <laughs>
0: there, there, yeah. there is. That. Yeah, that, and
1: and that is, that is like, that is deep man yeah <laughs> um, yeah um yeah i was i was i was actually surprised to, to find this i thought i was just going to write the part of the paper where yeah you know daily cited for a while and then it dies um but no no something really interesting happens here where frank says yeah there's this two-part test and he's pulling together these separate strands of cases the sequence of events uh, uh you know test from daily versus palmer um that winds up becoming the test for actual copying um that frank uses uh and so he says you know you look to see if there's any you know actual copying of copyrightable material from the plaintiff's work um although if you're only looking at it to figure out if there's actual copying not whether it's infringing you don't need to look at the entire sequence of events anymore just once you find some copying of some copyrightable material you're done um so so daily versus palmer winds up being step one of this two-part test um and then this other idea that had been developing that yeah you got to consider how the overall work appears to um the you know ordinary observer or the average playgoer or average listener of music um that which was kind of a reaction to the daily sequence of events test that winds up becoming part two uh Mm -hmm. of the test Um, and, uh, and so that's what, that's what Frank is doing. He's trying to combine these things together into one test. Uh, and that, and that's what kills Mm -hmm. off daily. Once you have that, um, you start, you cite Arnstein, um, for the test Mm -hmm. for infringement Mm -hmm. and you don't, you don't need daily anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that, and that's really the thing that got me about your paper and the sort of perspective you bring on what it meant in, the doctrinal history of kind of the way we understand the ontology of copyright is like in a weird way, I feel like daily V Palmer is almost like the Lochner V New York of copyright law. I mean, it's like it, it, it like it, it was a case that like was kind of weirdly decided on the facts that then became the basis for an entirely new way of thinking about the subject matter of an area of law that really had nothing to do with what the actual case was sort of grappling with in some
1: ways. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, you sort of feel for the judges in the early 20th century, though, because, I mean, they have to decide these kinds of cases that haven't come up before. I mean, so I mean, one thing that I um, found when I looked at Daily was, uh, you know, it, Judge Blatchford has this problem trying to decide this case of what's within the scope of the dramatic copyright, um, which is that when it comes time to figure out if a if a non-literal reproduction of like the action of, of a play infringes, right? And 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 how close does the does the alleged uh, infringing work have to come to the plaintiff's work to be infringing? Um, you know, what counts as similar enough? Um, the case law that he's looking at in 1869, prior cases on infringement, there had been plenty of cases up to that point um, that considered something less than complete reproduction of the plaintiff's work and whether that was infringing. But the vast majority of those cases concerned um, informational works, you know, math textbooks hmm. and grammar textbooks and books about how to get bills passed in parliament, um, George, George Washington's letters, uh, you know, et cetera, <laughs> right? So not works of fiction, Um, or works of art where you're talking about um, what is the, what is the like aesthetic value of the work to its audience that's willing to pay for it? Um, With informational works, it's, have you, have you sort of reproduced the work um, or the efforts of the original author in sort of organizing it in a particular way that makes sense to people um, have you duplicated enough of their organization of these materials or presentation of these materials to sort of cut into the profits that the original author is getting from how they arrange things? It's kind of a different question from have you taken the draw of a, you know, of a fictional work that's pulling in people and making them, you know, pay to see the play or, or buy the novel or whatever it
0: is. Well, and that's that's what really gets me about it. Is it's, it's like, it seems like initially it was like just nakedly a question of are you competing? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, are you competing in a way that we think that the author of the original work is entitled to object right. to? And then in the 20th century, it became not about like just are you competing, but have you have you take i mean it became a, a a a kind of laden question of like are you competing in like the wrong way have you taken something you're not entitled to take right and there was something much more like kind of um like like when it was initially decided it was much more naked mm-hmm. in terms of what what the question being asked was and then it became kind of like normativized <laughs> in the 20th century kind of weird yeah
1: i think what's going on is that the the notion of what's the market for a work is changing uh and i think that's changing because of overall changes in the economy not just for um not just for uh cultural uh goods um but uh overall in the economy um uh manufacturing and, you know, services and the like, um, they're all moving from sort of very local productions, uh, to more regional or national, uh, productions on, you know, you've, you've got, um, uh, the industrial revolution, uh, you've got things that, you know, standardized, uh, parts, um, and, uh, uh and fast transportation that can get things all over the country. Uh, and so this is affecting, I think, um, arts and culture as much as it's affecting, you know, widgets and, and, uh, articles of manufacture, uh, and, and, and Daly, actually Daly's suit, I think is probably motivated by some of those early developments, even in 1869. Um, because one thing that's happening to Daly is that Daly is trying to run a theater with a stock company, uh, in 1869, when m- many other theaters, um have moved away from that model. And in fact, in the economic crash of 1873, um, uh, basically the number of stock com- companies in the country goes down from 50 to seven. Um, so he's one of only seven left. Um, other companies are producing plays uh, and they're circulating the plays around like the eastern seaboard, you know, relying on trains uh and other, you know, uh and also improved methods of communication to get the word out. Um and daily's st- basically stuck with his stock company in New York. Um, and it, the company travels a little bit, but in order to make uh, money that competes on the scale of the traveling companies, um, he has to license his production to other companies, uh, to produce. Um, and I think that must've been a driver behind his suit. I mean, he's also just an irascible person, um, who, uh, you know, gets in fights with people all the time. He actually daily actually once sued a newspaper publisher for, you'll, you'll appreciate this, Brian. Um, he he sued a, a newspaper publisher in New York uh, at one point for accusing him of plagiarism. But the basis <laughs> the basis for his the basis, basis for his defamation claim was not that he hadn't committed plagiarism, it's that the newspaper article accused him of plagiarizing the wrong play. <laughs> yeah so anyway so he's likely to sue at the drop of a hat but um but he also has an economic motive for it and that that sort of thing i think just increases right so i think in 1869 right who is he suing he's suing a rival play producer he's actually suing he doesn't sue busico directly um he sues Mm -hmm. um he sues the product uh, the, the theater the theater in new york that's gonna um uh host this uh rival play um Mm-hmm. And so that's his competition, right? People who are producing a version that he says is at least contains the same scene from his play. Um, by the 1900s, I mean, like I said, you've got this explosion uh, in in culture in all different forms that are being sold to consumers in some way. Um, and uh, producers are looking for material in lots of different forms. And so they're buying and licensing the rights to produce plays and uh, you know, from short stories or from uh, other plays or movies like the, in Nichols versus universal pictures universal tried to license the right um, to make a version of Abby's Irish Rose uh, and then, and the negotiations fell through. So they're, they're like, okay, fine. We'll just, we'll make the Cohens and the Kelly's then. Um, uh, and so you've got, and so I think the notion of what's, what's the market for the work goes beyond just you know, if you've got a play, it's producing plays. Uh, It goes to, if you've got a play, you can make money off of uh, your play. You can make money off of a movie version of your play. Uh, You can make money off of a short story version of your play. Um, And so I think that's what's, and and so the judge is trying to decide, well, how much of that is the original copyright owner entitled to? You know, when these first cases first start coming up in the early 1900s, they don't have a lot of case law other than Dilley versus Palmer about what might define the scope of somebody's rights in other media uh so Mm -hmm. that's i think why they start looking at daily versus palmer for for just some sort of guide and daily says well you look at the sequence of events right i mean you can look at the dialogue if it's if it's copied but um if if not you know you look at the sequence of events so that way you can tell whether this silent film uh infringes on the copyright in this play is it telling the same story as the play Um, So I think that's completely understandable. It just turns out not to be very workable. Um, There's some cases I talk about in the article where – I mean, there's one short story that was turned into a play, I think, where basically it seems like just the sort of the outlines of the short story were taken by the play. Court holds that infringing Second Circuit. Like two years later – um somebody else tries to do a, a silent film of Jack of a Jack London short story. Sounds pretty close to me, maybe even closer than the earlier case. Um but the court says, no, you know, the idea of two thieves, you know, poisoning each other so that they can get the loot, um, it goes all the way back to Chaucer. So, you know, so mm-hmm. you can't get a copyright in that. It's it's very ad hoc, basically.
0: Yeah. 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 Well so 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 Bruce, I'm wondering like in closing can you reflect on what sort of researching and thinking about the real history of daily v palmer can tell us about or like what you learned about like thinking about the kind of thinking about copyright history and understanding copyright history in in context
1: yeah so um this paper wound up becoming part of a project that I've been engaged in for a while now, where I'm looking at the state of our copyright doctrines today, um, particularly the older ones, uh, and I'm trying to figure out how they got into that shape. Uh, and I started off this uh, series of inquiries by thinking, you know, well, you got, you know, you've got the test for infringement. And it's got two parts to it, at least the way the Second Circuit does. And the Ninth Circuit's got a different two parts. Um, uh, you know, where did that come from? What were the courts that came up with that originally trying to do? Maybe we can get shed some light on what is troubling current courts about, you know, how to determine whether something's substantially similar um, to something else. Uh, maybe we can shed some light on how to do that by going back to the original goals of the test and figuring out what courts were trying to do and then maybe we just need to update their goals in a different way uh, for modern times so so i've been kind of doing that um and the problem i've been running into is uh in a lot of cases the factors of the tests that have been passed down to us today are just completely arbitrary they're just like historical accidents um basically uh and so uh i think daily versus palmer kind of indicates that um for the test for infringement, right? So um, when the when the question comes up before the second circuit in Ernstein versus Porter, um, you know, how do you do the test for infringement? They've got two lines of cases, and those wind up becoming the two parts. Um, but there's not really much uh, that informs how you do the second part, right? So you figure out whether there's been actual copying, but then how do you figure out whether that level of copying is improper? Um, the courts always is always really vague on that, um, and it's it's vague on that because that line of cases basically is a response to um, to Daily versus Palmer, but doesn't really have much content to it, um, and that's continued to trouble the the courts uh, down to today. And again, you want to talk about historical accidents. I got I got to get this this point in, which is that one of the I found hmm. doing this uh, project is. You know, well, where did the Ninth Circuit test come from? Where in the world did the Ninth Circuit come up with the idea in, uh, in um, Sid, Sid Marty Croft versus McDonald's in 1977 that the way you do the infringement test is not by looking for actual copying, you do it by looking for access to the plaintiff's work by the defendant and then two forms of substantial similarity, you know, the intrinsic test and the extrinsic test? Where in the world did they come up with that? Um, well, they came up with that from Melville Nimmer. Uh, Melville Nimmer was the counsel for Sid Marty Croft, who argued the case on the ninth, in the Ninth Circuit, um, and that's what Melville Nimmer had written in his treatise uh, for how to do the test for infringement. Where did Nimmer get that idea that that's the test? Um, he got that idea that that's the test from uh, from a Second Circuit case decided in 1938, um, where Judge um, Martin Manton. Um, who had never been a fan of the daily sequence of events test, uh, but also apparently wasn't really a fan of, of the uh, at least the way that judge learned hand was doing the, uh, uh, the ordinary observer kind of test. Um, He just goes off on this rant. Uh, in in this 1938 case, Shipman versus RKO Pictures, where he's like, the Second Circuit has been doing uh, the test for infringement all wrong for 70 years. It's all due to Daily versus Palmer. That's where things went awry. Um, it's a you know, it's it, and then and then he actually, even though Learned Hand is on the panel. Uh, he then says, furthermore, we came up with this idea in Nichols where you're supposed to look at levels of abstraction. What the heck is that? Nobody knows what that means. Um, so no wonder it hasn't been adopted by anybody else. Um, and Hand kind of writes this very, uh, I, I don't know, you can sense the tension, I think, uh, in this concurrence where he says, well, I agree with the result in the uh, opinion, but I don't agree with all that has been said. Um, uh, LAUGHTER Anyway, so Nanton goes off on this rant where he says, look, I've got a new test. I've got a new test. You look to see if the defendant had access to the plaintiff's material. Uh, And then if the level of similarity is enough to indicate copying, then you figure out whether it's enough to be improper. That's our test. Um, And that is um, so close to what Nimmer says is what Arnstein versus Porter means um, when he writes his treatise in 1963 then I think he must have been basically pulling his test from Manton's description of what the test should be uh, in RKO, RKO pictures. Well, I mean, one of the, you know, just a, another interesting footnote there is so Manton goes on this rant in December of 1938 uh, and writes this opinion. In January of 1939, he has to resign from the court because he's about to be indicted for bribery. Um, So this is his, this is his mic drop, right? He's, it's like the, it's like that flight attendant, right? Who got really annoyed with his job. And on the way out, he like opened the emergency slide and, you know, and left the plane. Right. So this is man's like, you know, um, uh, a pox on all of you. You've been doing substantial similarity wrong all this time. Uh, I'm out of here uh and but anyway but Nimmer picks that up in his treatise um and that's where the ninth circuit tests um for infringement comes from so anyway the bottom line here is what can we learn i think we can learn that um maybe it's worth revisiting some the way in which some of these tests have come about and not to assume that we need to keep them in the form that they've been used even though they've been used now for decades um that there's not necessarily a, um, you know, a patina of you know well reasonedness uh, to these tests just f- from the fact that they were adopted in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, th- thanks, Bruce. I mean, this is like a great, a great conversation. I love the paper, and it was just so illuminating to see like how the context informs what this sort of. Uh, not only the history of copyright law and the copyright doctrine, but also like the history of this like really seminal case that I think you know we sort of don't understand how it how it informs the way that we think about these questions today.
1: Well, thanks, Brian. It's been a pleasure.
0: Okay. Cool. I'd never met you Cause now I can't Stay away And this feeling Is growing stronger
1: Increasing day by day I have There's another to whom I belong But I forget her when
0: I'm with you Hawking about that's right. damages beyond repair I could break the chains
1: that bind me home
0: I can't escape it's much
1: too late how can the love that's alright